This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast brought to you by Makin that focuses on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my regular co-host, Eugene, is out of town right now. So filling in is our summer apprentice, Alec Rose. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch-up and then two main items of news chosen by Alec and myself. We pick our topics from the Making Briefing, which is an email which we send out twice a week and it's filled with current news, interesting links, and some analysis of culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to come to some kind of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, whatever it may be, in our modern times. All right. You excited? You recorded twice with us, though, as a guest. But I tried to stay quite quiet through them and let you and Eugene kind of lead it. And then... It's very considerate of you. Yeah. You didn't have to do that. I was just learning learning on the job, but now I'm in the driver's seat. Yeah. Or maybe the passenger seat, depends. You can be in the driver's seat. Okay. And I'm my running joke whenever we have guests is that I'm vetting for Eugene's replacement. Oh, uh, so okay. This could be it. I might never have to do this with Eugene again. Yeah. God, we can dream. <laughs> you know, it's funny because so ever since we've recorded this podcast... Um, Eugene's been doing the editing, which you've done for the past couple episodes. And because he does the editing, he doesn't listen back to the final product. Yeah. But I do. So like I'll, when it's launched on the podcast app, I'll re-listen to the whole thing. Okay. So he doesn't listen to the final. But now that you are doing the editing. Yeah. I don't even know if he's going to hear this. Oh yeah. I honestly don't. You might never know. Nobody tell Eugene that we just like talk trash about him on this episode. Ignorance is bliss. The uh, story that Eugene assigned me when I got here, like my first proper series I had a say in was uh, the Bibora story and that went up two days ago, which felt nice. Yeah. Yeah. It looks amazing. Obviously not what? all my work, but like, I don't know, it's nice to see uh, see it all polished and up and yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I was going to ask like what feels nice about it. Well, a lot of the stuff that I've been doing in London, like apprenticeships in London have been kind of exactly what Maycan isn't in that they are almost like an elongated advert mm. what, what I'm writing like it's fashion based but it's just kind of it's nothing really it's just like mush but now that's like the first thing that I've put quite a lot of time into and it's come out as a real finished product which is rounded and interesting yeah, yeah. so it felt yeah it felt really good also that one is quite exciting because it's one of a series right yeah so you get to see the whole series yeah, come exactly. out yeah. And you you are working on a larger piece as well that's coming out yeah, towards the end of the month. I am, yeah. yeah. It's quite exciting. Oh, I've got a story going out tomorrow. All right. Well, it's not really, like I just did the production on this one, but I get excited particularly when I get to work with new writers. Mm. This will be the first time we are publishing um, the writer Sarah Kim on our site, who is a friend and someone we've worked with before, but this is the first time um, she's helped contribute with us so that's really cool for me yeah i was gonna say do you still get like a bit of a rush when you see your stories online or does it kind of yeah i do i definitely do because it's not like that publishing is for me isn't like old hat unlike eugene per se he's been doing it for more years than we have but i think like publishing is exciting seeing things live on the internet is exciting but what gets me even more excited is to see the feedback yeah. And 
feedback from our stories. Like it doesn't have to be something I wrote. I still feel quite excited yeah. when I get that. Like for by Bora or um, the Neil Brennan piece, even though I actually had, I didn't do any of the writing or the illustrations, yeah. like just seeing other people share that and have that be meaningful to them is fun. It's quite easy to ignore the fact that people are going to be actually reading it unless <laughs> you see the feedback, you know, it's like, <laughs> You can, like, you basically have no idea if people are reading it or not. Like, you've got some number in front of you for how many people have clicked it. But if it's like actually resounding with anyone and it's exciting to see that people are actually reading it and it, yeah. it's making an impact. Yeah. It is, it's true what you're saying because like we obviously have the analytics. Yeah. But the numbers don't mean very much. Yeah. Like, it's very abstract. Yeah. Exactly. Until you see some actual human reaction from the piece, it doesn't mean anything to see a number there, no matter how big it is or, yeah. small or whatever like. yeah and actually I, I think we can say it here it's fine Mike Shinoda um, from Lincoln Park shared the Neil yeah, Brennan yeah. piece which I was like just totally confused by at first I was like wait who is this person who's sharing on our IG stories um, but that was just really cool I felt kind of bad because it, it might be a uh, an age thing but I saw <laughs> I saw you guys post it on the uh, on the WhatsApp and uh, everyone went crazy. Everyone was like, people were fangirling. There were like lots of emojis. Oh. And I was, I had to search him and find out who he was. It's okay. I like, it's not, I mean, it is what it is, right? The rest of us are a good, a chunk older. That's it. title of my article is The Quantified Heart, and it's about artificial intelligence promising ever more control over the highs and lows of our emotions, and whether we should be worried about this, which seems fairly obvious to me that we, uh, we probably should. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting anyway, because it, it sounds ridiculous at first, and it gets even more ridiculous when you read through it and really think about the articles. So the article is on a site called Aeon. It's based around this this viral photo that went viral in September 2017. It was a screenshot of somebody in America telling the Google Assistant that they feel sad. And the response from the Google Assistant is, I wish I had arms so I could give you a hug. Then just below that, there's a screenshot of a Russian person uh, telling Elisa, the uh, artificial intelligence assistant from Russian company Yandex, I feel sad, Mnie Grusna. And the Russian AI responds, this is hilarious, I love it. No one said life was about having fun. But actually, literally, nobody said that life would be easy. I forgot that you studied Russian until just now. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a Russian response, though. It's just, honestly, like, when I first saw this, I was like, this is a hoax, right? Because this is like someone's turning Russian literature into yeah. like some kind of contemporary meme. The article goes on to say that AI, like machine learning, is like increasingly being used for non-utilitarian help. That is kind of, instead of asking your assistant, how far is this from this? It's more telling it jokes or asking it to tell you jokes or seeking emotional help. Amazon actually reported that half of the conversations that Alexa has are of a non-utilitarian nature, which kind of also implies that they're listening to everything you say if they've got statistics on what your conversations are about, which is also a scary thought. Yeah, that one's actually even more terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That has introduced an idea that there's a market for a much more emotionally intelligent AI, which actually is, is its foundation would be emotional help. 
seen as people are actually much more likely to speak candidly to an AI than a real person. It's almost a new version of writing a diary. It kind of, yeah. it's that bubble of non-judgment, really. And this market is actually being explored by, by new companies. Uh, one in Boston in 2016, sorry, founded in Boston in 2016 is, um, developing mental health testing using AI and the, uh, the AI app would be able to detect acoustic changes in your voice to diagnose depression or anxiety in its owner. It's also been being rolled out for postnatal depression in, in new mothers. And there's one quotation that they use in this article, which really scared me. It's from Annette Zimmerman, who is a research vice president at consulting company Gartner. Um, she said this in a blog post. It really got me. It's, she said, your personal device will know more about your emotional state than your own family. But what a, what about this is scary to you? I think it's complete disconnection from those closest to you. Like if your family are there for anything, emotional help is up there. For me, that was, that would be friends and family are there for, to help you in hard times, right? Like obviously you can have fun with them as well. Your family raise you, but emotional help is so important for humans to be healthy. To be a healthy human, you need to speak about your mental health with other humans. I think, especially your family, that really almost made me feel sick. I was like, God, this is awful. And it's true as well. Like even now, I think most electronic devices, if they could record it, well, they probably do. But like if, if they were to record everything that we told them, they would know more about us than our family. You're totally right. They already do know more that, about us than yeah. our family. They just don't have a smart, like the devices don't have a smart way to collect all of that data and into something it. coherent. Yeah. yeah. But is it scary because you think that like devices will replace those human connections? I think that's kind of what this is saying. Yeah. I think it's, it's really showing the complete distancing of people. Like it, it displays to me a really lonely modern day where it's easier to speak to a machine than a human. It's kind of depressing. Like whether it's because machines have got so good or our relationship with humans has got so bad. Like do we just work all the time? I don't know what it is. There are lots of things that can contribute to this, but I kind of wonder if um I'm not advocating for like fewer human relationships, but I also do think that there are situations where it's possible for AI to be useful to people who don't have existing healthy human relationships. Yeah. Like you and I are fortunate to have close family mm -hmm. and friends to talk to, but what about elderly people or single moms or orphans or just people in various situations where that doesn't exist. Um, I think that's a possibility. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a really good point and not an angle that I had thought about. But I think that if, if the human interaction is available, it should not be overlooked to AI. And I think that seems like what is happening because it cannot be that enough people don't have access to human interaction and to talk about their own feelings, their emotions, that it's worth developing AI that can do that for you. True. It does seem dangerous that because of the rise of AI, we wouldn't further promote the need for human relationships. Yeah. If the AI comes in, it's great. Then that will begin to. Because there's like a backup. Because plan. it's there. Yeah. Yeah. A development of this is that are we putting too much faith in technology here? 
And what the article kind of goes on to say is, we could get into pretty dangerous ground here, where the AI actually begins to take control of the way that we feel. The same reason that we go to a trusted therapist or we seek help in people we trust, i.e. family and friends, is because we trust their advice. But how can we trust a machine's advice? Mm. And this kind of goes back to the viral screenshot of how a Russian AI responds versus uh, an American AI. And there isn't a correct answer. Everybody is different. Cultures are different. These machines learn from... Their programmers, from their creators. Yeah, and from the majority of things said online. So they're responding completely different ways. You can't really trust it. There's not a right answer. Whereas, I think it's that... I don't know if I would say you can't trust it, but it's that we need to be aware that an AI is essentially a conglomerate. Yeah. Like it's the average of many answers. Right, and it's yeah. not, it's not one individual, even though they have names like Elisa and mm-hmm. Alexa and Siri. It's not this one woman. Like a therapist would be one single person. And so that's something you just need to be aware of that this AI has no history. It yeah. has no family background. It's, it could change at the drop of a pin depending on its programming. Right. Right. It which I, I get what you're driving at there. And that's interesting because actually on our, the make and slack channel there was a weekly question which was could ai like take over in design and i made a similar argument which was that for me great design takes inspiration in things that have happened in the past are emotional responses to it and you need that human aspect to it because a machine can't process the emotion the emotional experience really which for me is essential and I'm fairly certain it's Jonathan Choi. Okay. And John Choi, Jonathan Choi completely disagreed. Yeah. And he said, actually, this is how machine learning works. It knows the past better than we do. So that's also something to consider because that was kind of your argument now, which is that we need to learn that they don't know that they don't have experience, but apparently they do. Well, you're right. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that the situations are different. Actually, in fashion... While I wouldn't say that AI is going to overtake human designers, it is true that AI can survey all of the history of fashion design more quickly and comprehend it than a human can, just because it's a machine. And what comes out of that is, like the merit of what comes out of that is debatable, right? But yes, they have more knowledge. And I think the same thing for an AI that's, responding emotionally to us they have more knowledge about all of human experience but maybe that's not what someone needs like an ai has all the elements of like human tragedy like they are aware of all the possibilities of human tragedy but it's not specific to the ai because it's not human and while that could be useful under some situations like let's say you have a broken leg and you only have an AI on hand. The AI will know the best way to treat the broken leg yeah. better than a human. But let's say you have a broken heart. Even though the AI, I'm sure, has read every you know relationship manual out there, it's not a specific person and is therefore less likely to be helpful, actually. Yeah, it's because these emotional problems are so subjective and people react in different ways to different advice. Some things that would 
be great for some people to get over a broken heart would be the worst thing for other people. Yeah, there's com- there's so many different responses when it comes to emotions, whereas for lots of other things, the AI does really well. I was wondering if you can see a way, because we've been co- talking about it sort of at an extreme end, yeah. where like an AI is replacing human relationships or human therapy, but maybe there's somewhere in between where AI, it can be of assistance to a regular person yeah. in terms of emotional and mental health. I was actually talking about this while I was writing my notes, not to myself, <laughs> <laughs> that idea, like how far could this go? And my girlfriend said, actually, it's a really good idea if for the, for the example where it could tell, it could basically diagnose you with depression or anxiety. If it can give you the warning signs, she suggested it might alert people to the fact that you are, I don't know, maybe it's because of what you're searching online or things that you're asking it, stuff like that. If it could alert people and say, this person probably needs help, that'd be great. And I said, is that okay? Is it okay that without you knowing it has told people that you need help? Is that completely just, it's almost censorship. Do you know what I mean? If it started blocking websites for you. That's again, I'm talking in extremes here and right, I've gone extreme right, again. But. Right. I mean, I think in that situation, you as a individual would have to have given your phone permission. or computer, yeah, computer permission to yeah. do that. It's kind of like how there's this, I forget if it's built into the iOS or it's an app where you can set a situation and say, um, you can tap it and say like you're going home. And then if within like a certain period of time, you don't tap it again, it'll automatically like send a message to your parents or whoever you said to. And the idea is like, then they'll be immediately notified that something happened to you on your way home. Um, this is a bit like that, but I do on your girlfriend's train of thought, even if your phone, like if you gave your phone or device or whatever permission to warn you, that could be helpful yeah. as well. Like, let's say you are someone who is prone to anxiety and depression um, and you see a therapist regularly or you take medication and then you want to ex- try to get off of that, but you want to have like safety measures mm-hmm. in place. That could be a safety measure yeah, for your device to warn you. And I, I was actually, I was thinking on even lower levels, like, have you ever tried Headspace? The meditation app. Yeah, the um, mindfulness stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, it didn't wind up working out for me. Like I did give it a go, but I do see things like that becoming more popular. Definitely. I thought it was a really good idea. Yeah. Making those things possible, like meditation for everybody. Because in the past, it's been something that only a few people do and really preach it. But when everybody can do it on, a, on I think that, yeah, as you're saying, I think there are some real advantages to phones and devices becoming more ingrained in emotional in our emotional worlds and our like mental worlds but then i do think there's a very fine line between when it becomes quite sinister yeah and insidious in our lives it is so interesting there was another example in this article about mood tracking like how like you know what we've talking about about your phone actually knows your mood better than we realize it's just that they haven't like gathered that data and interpreted it. But it's possible that you could put a mood tracking finance app together where like if you, again, this is dependent on your permissions, but you could say like, oh, if you detect like you, the device detect that I'm feeling erratic or sad, like block my credit card or like yeah. limit my credit card spending. So 
I never thought of that possibility. Yeah. I've just been doing my finals at university and lots of people have these apps which you set you set a time on your it's called like it's called self-control. And you set a timer on your laptop and it just shuts down all social media and stuff like that. And you cannot turn it off until you, until it only turns itself off at the time that you set. But Yeah, yes. actually it is similar because it's like that, but just with enough intelligence that it would put Detected itself. itself. Yes, yeah. exactly. You're, at the time, you're never going to think it's a good idea though, are you? You're yeah. always going to think, why the hell is this? You're going to hate it at the time. And it's, it's probably a similar thing for those who are in need of, men, of mental help. They're not going to agree with the phone at the time that it's telling them, you need to seek help or we suggest that you seek help. Mm-hmm. Because in that state, you're not thinking logically. You're not going to think, oh, the phone thinks so, so I'll go and do it. But in that stage, you're at your lowest point and you're going to completely ignore anything that the phone's telling you, I guess. There was one point in this article that I disagreed with, which was it said that um, it's ironic to be using devices to cure humanity of the illnesses brought about by devices. And what I disagree with is that like our unhappiness is only from devices. Yeah. <laughs> like I think that misunderstands. Yeah, definitely. I think the article was a little bit, I don't know, there were parts I didn't agree with when they really, they kind of had this section where they really ripped Russia to shreds and I thought that was a bit off off track. Yeah, they did do like that. Somebody kind of had a bit of a personal vendetta to Russia. Yeah, they did do that. And I think that was a bit unfair. Completely generalizing Russians as sexist and racist and uh yeah, anyway. What's your main takeaway? Judging by the fact that you also asked you've been active in the Slack about AI, it seems like something yeah. that's I think I'm, I'm regularly on your mind. I've been discussing it quite a lot actually and it is interesting to me the ways that it could be used to these like amazing ends. But I think it's also a very fine line between it really ruining things and taking humanity out of it. It's actually almost leads into your story, oh. I think. But <laughs> we can get on to that. But yeah, I think yeah. there's a really fine line in between dehumanizing these aspects of life um, and optimizing them with the digital world or yeah, distancing them so far from humanity that they're not fun or they don't have any worth anymore. That does remind me as well about um, when all of the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal was happening, there was a lot of comments about how developers and people who are creating products need to think about not just, is it possible that I can make this, but should I make this? Because I do think with AI, like what's exciting is there seems to be so many possibilities, but not all of them serve real needs yeah definitely and there's probably for those who are developing it there's a temptation to just take it as far as it can possibly go if you can do it why not but yeah that's a really good point is it actually going to benefit anything Mm. oh that's actually a perfect segue into my one Um, so my topic I picked is the subject you chose for the analysis of Monday's Make and Briefing. And it's that Nike has started to roll out their new app, Nike App at Retail. The goal is to bridge digital and physical retail and make physical retail better. But the conclusion you came to and the one that I would argue for as well is that it doesn't enhance retail in a meaningful way. Yeah. So just to give a couple of facts, the Nike app does a couple of things. 
And this is not possible in all Nike stores yet. It's currently being tested mostly in California. So first of all, you can browse and reserve Nike products from the app. You don't have to be in the store. And then you can reserve it and have it waiting for you when you get to the store. You can get Nike Plus bonuses, which they make sound really sexy and fun. But honestly, our coupons, like, it's just that. It's like discounts, which is great to have. But it, honestly, it's about the same as getting a newsletter that says you get 10% off now. And also you can, when you're in the store, instead of having a employee come up to you and say, you know, can I help you? You can just get an employee to help you when you request it from the app. So all of these features, like you said, and which I agree with, they're not necessarily bad. Yeah. Like I understand how they streamline a shopping experience, mm-hmm. but they have turned a shopping experience like an actual experience, like something that takes an afternoon yeah. into a five minute errand. Yeah. What really puzzles me is all of these things you can do online already. It's, yes. it's basically making yes. the online shopping experience something that you now can do in person. It's so bizarre. It, yeah. It's so bizarre because it's very confusing to me. They seem to have just turned online shopping into something slightly more complicated. Yeah. It's like, like you've always been able to buy something and select a store to pick it up from yes. instead of getting postage. There's always that option as a pickup option. And also you could argue that online shopping is better because they can send it. Yeah. To your and flat. they can deliver it to you if you want. But it, uh, that's what I was wondering when I was reading the article was like, they have made it look, it looks amazing as all Nike stuff does. It looks super modern, really easy to navigate. Yeah. The app and, itself does look great. And like, as you said, They've managed to make everything sound really sexy and new and modern. But if you actually really think about it, it is stuff that you can do online and yeah, get delivered. Like, I wonder if we were actually using the app, would we find some new value in it? Maybe they just haven't explained it properly. But yeah, right now it just seems it puzzled me because I was wondering what is new to this. Yeah, I don't really see anything new. I mean, it is proprietary. So that's new, I guess you could say, like it's Nike's own app and it is linked to their retail stores. So they want to establish this thing where you are just within the Nike system and you're not shopping on ASOS and therefore get distracted by a pair of Reeboks or whatever. So I understand that from a company perspective, but I just don't, and it's fine. Like I would say that it makes maybe some things easier. If you are super introverted and you hate talking to shop employees, then Fine. This has solved that problem for you and you don't need to talk to them. But I wouldn't say that it makes the physical shopping experience something more. No. It it makes it a lonely thing to do now. Yes, it does. You can go to the store and not speak to anybody now, which is what you do at home again. But yeah, it's totally eliminated the need for staff. But what I wanted to talk about is not to like complete, just to go on and on about how this doesn't make shopping better. But what do you think? a Nike app that was enhancing retail could do? It's difficult because it is really difficult to like reconcile it with the physical world because what I was going to say is the whole Nike ID experience could be brought into it in the sense that if you find part of a shoe that you really like, say you want an all-black shoe and they've only released it with a white sole but a black upper, maybe you could, they would, ha- they would have to have machines in the shop 
but I guess assuming all the tech is possible. Okay, yeah, yeah. On the app, you can go into the store, you can see these shoes. You'd be like, okay, I want those with black sole. You do it on the app, and then it comes out, and you can try it on. Or actually, you probably wouldn't then be able to try it on once it's made. But but you could immediately make it, yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. But then also that it doesn't change the fact that you can do that online. It makes it quicker, <laughs> as in you could get it straight away. Nike ID, like um, last time I got something done there, it was, I think it was like six weeks or something. I would at least argue that that is more fun. It is more fun, yeah. To be in a physical store and see it. They often have those computers there that you can like mess around with the shoes, you can change the colors and stuff. But I don't know if you can actually order them mm. in store. But yeah, I think that basically, instead of trying to make it easier and more streamlined, I think what you just said is... They, Try and make it more fun. Actually enhance the retail experience rather than streamline it. For me, personally, subjectively, a more interesting Nike retail app would be one that convinced me to spend more time in yeah. a store rather than yeah, less. Surely that's what they should be aiming for. The more time you spend in there, the more you feel you know the brand, you're the more part of it you are. Like You probably get to know the people who work in the store. Mm-hmm. makes a community around the store. Yeah, because these are all local. These are all, you would say what your local store is and then you order to that local store. So it, I think it, I did feel like they were trying to make it like a, you have your local Nike store. And it's like, yeah, but what makes the local Nike store your local Nike store is not just that you buy shoes there, yeah, right? It's that you know, exactly like you know the staff, you know what the physical space looks like, you know when the displays change, right? So it should be focusing on those attributes. Yeah. And I almost think like the, it does sort of hint at this, but doesn't say this exactly. The Nike Plus things that you unlock should be related to you doing things in the actual world. Yeah. Which would be more interesting to me than just, you now get 10% off, like something like that. You see, it says, you might receive one instantly from a Nike athlete helping you in the store or even before you walk through the door. But that says to me that it's just arbitrary. If it yeah. happens like any time. And do you remember the um, Nike sneaker stash drop at the Kendrick Lamar concert? No, you put this in the notes and I actually don't know about this. Okay, so this happened in May, just this May. And it was at it was the first test of this. And Nike collaborated with Kendrick on this collection on apparel and footwear. And then they did a surprise drop at the live concert. And technically it didn't go great because there were hiccups in terms of the way the app worked and the timing of it. But I think conceptually it's very strong. Yeah. Like for me, that's a great concept that ties together an app and a physical event and an, and, and an exclusive product. Yeah, definitely. I think that's also the thing that confuses me about this app is that Nike are actually usually really good at things like this as in involving their customers like the whole Nike run the like running clubs that they yeah, have yeah, in yeah. different cities and like I think they're usually really great about innovate innovating their like digital world like like as you said that it's just a, that's a really good idea I mean, it might not have worked but it's a great idea I mean and they could get it to a point where the the development issues like the bugs were ironed out. And the other thing I put in the notes that you might have seen is that Nike did um team up with Snapchat. I know Snapchat's not doing great now right now, but conceptually I like this as well because it was related to augmented reality, which I know can seem gimmicky, but the thing about AR is needing to be in a physical place. And I think that that's the draw of it. Like if you can only 
see whatever or view some kind of product by being in a certain space. Yeah. And then using your phone. So did you see interestingly the new I think it was a new Vetimal hoodie, which is AR. No, I did not. Yeah, so that's just been I think it was Vetimal, it might have been Balenciaga. It was Demna Grassalia. No, it's Vasalia either way. Yeah. And if you point your yeah, there we go. It's Vetimal. Ah, I see. If you point your phone at the hoodie cartoon characters appear and start running around the um ah, I kind of love that yeah it, I think it, it looks kind of terrible but like it's a really interesting idea yeah I love it from a conceptual point of view not that this lime green hoodie <laughs> with like with Looney Tunes characters yeah, Looney Tunes. running around the center um, I'm not about to buy this but I, I just think there are interesting applications there Definitely. that we haven't seen yet yeah I'm still thinking about how you can make the Nike app experience better. I want someone from Nike to listen to this and employ me. <laughs> Sponsor me. Um. You find the shoes in the shop and then there's a way to virtually try them on. So you can stand in front of a mirror and it puts the shoes on. You, you can cycle through the colors whilst you're stood in the mirror. Honestly, for apparel, I would be all there too. That's cool. I hate yeah. trying on apparel. So yeah, if you can just cycle through different colors, different sizes... It would have to look good, as in it would have to look quite realistic, which they can't do right now. Because that is that is a thing. You can try on glasses on websites and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, Warby Parker. This is not something that I'm... I'm probably not the target demographic for this, but I also think they could introduce some kind of social element. Yeah, I think that that's key to making... I think that that would be where the, the value would lie in this app, is making these stores, like we said, making these stores a hub for people to go and actually like going making them yeah like an, an experience to go to the store meet people you know who you've spoken to in a in a chat room or something about new drops yeah and you know they live in your area they go to the same like store yeah because you can involve running clubs with that as well and like it's making a community around the store as you said to make people want to spend more time in the store rather than streamline it so you can spend as little time as possible with as few people as possible in exactly store. yeah oh that's like the same conclusion we drew from your topic <laughs> Be more human. Well, or how can... Be more human, but how can technology, which we can't stop the progress of, how can technology gear us towards spending more time with humans yeah. rather than not? Good place to wind things down. If you're interested in learning more about making, reading, and listening to our stories that are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makein.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. And if you like this podcast, please do us a massive favor by reviewing it on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Alec. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. (laughs) 